What do we need in violent times? Stronger weapon systems, better intelligence so that we can root out threats before they arise, a more robust police force, or rules for governing its use. Well, Emily Katz Anhalt, who teaches classical languages and literature at Sarah Lawrence College, believes we need stories, and not just any stories, ancient Greek myths. These are not stories about us directly, right? We don't star in these tales. So we can be moved by the characters' predicaments and, and what happens to them, uh, but we're not blinded by, by rage. We'll be talking with Professor Ann Holtz about her book, Enraged, Why Violent Times Need Ancient Greek Myths, published in 2017 by Yale University Press. How do ancient Greek myths teach us the consequences of rage, especially in society? What do they tell us about how to remove ourselves from feelings and situations of rage, or how to channel rage more productively? And how can they help us to empathize with those whom we see as our opponents, those who perhaps stoke our rage? I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. And now our conversation with Emily Katz Anhalt. Uh, Emily Katz Anhalt, it is a pleasure uh, to have you here uh, as the inaugural uh, guest of our BYU Humanities Center podcast. Um, you know, you published uh, this book, this really fascinating book, in 2017 uh, with Yale University Press. And I just discovered the book this year in 2020. Uh, the book seems, if anything, more relevant three years later. <laughs> you know? um, can one of you could tell us uh, how you came upon the idea for this project? Was it in thinking about, you know, uh, these violent times of ours, or was it thinking about ancient Greek myth and its applicability to all times and eras? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you today. I'm very happy to have this opportunity. Yeah, as a classicist, I always want my work to be relevant, but uh, somehow not quite so much, I think. <laughs> uh, no, uh, to be honest, the, the, the uh, Enraged is the first piece of a project that I actually started thinking about in 2011 during the so-called uh, Arab Spring. Oh, really? And I was very surprised to hear people confidently expecting that democratic institutions would just simply magically arise in places that had only ever known dictatorship. And I, and I found myself thinking, uh, you, you probably wouldn't think that if you had ever read the Iliad or the Odyssey. Uh, so I wanted to write a book for people who were concerned about current events, but maybe unaware of the valuable assistance uh, available to us in the form of ancient Greek epics and tragedies. That's really, it's a, it's a, that's really interesting that it was born in 2011 in some way, this project. Um, historically, so you, you know, you study classical languages and literature. Are you somebody who's always thought about the connection between what you've studied and the the world in which you're living? Or is it the kind of thing yeah. where, you know, that, 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 that came upon you? Because a lot of academics, you know, we get so down the rabbit hole of our specialization, we're talking to other academics. It's a different thing to do what you're doing and to talk about your specialty to a much broader reading public. Well, in college and graduate school, I was taught to read with one eye on the text and one eye on the world. Uh, so I think I've always been interested in the intersections between literature and politics. That is how our stories uh, shape 
our attitudes and aspirations, that how they um, cultivate our interactions with one another, how we treat one another, how we expect to be treated. And I think our, our literature routinely does this for us. One of the remarkable things about ancient Greek epics and tragedies to me is that uh, these are not these were not and are not just entertainment. They they actively invite our critical judgment. So they don't shape us unconsciously. They invite us to interact and to think about the themes and issues that they raise. Which is a really important point. I'm going to come back to that point in a little while because it's such an important part of your book uh, and very convincingly, I think, uh, argued in your book. Um, I want to come back and have you elaborate on that a little bit uh, for us later. First off, you know, the ancient Greek myths, you know, there are so many of these and they're so vivid. And I remember reading about them, we all did when we were children, uh, and, but they've got so much depth and richness. You're focusing in this book um, on myths surrounding the Trojan War, right? The Iliad and things that are related to the Iliad. Um, I wonder uh, why you focus on that particular story and could you, re you could rehearse very briefly uh, that story for those listeners who may have forgotten about it. Well, I'm embarrassed to admit that it took me a very long time to settle on these three texts for this book, because in retrospect, the choice seems completely obvious. Uh, the very first word of the Iliad is the noun rage. And, and Greek can do this because Greek can start a sentence with the direct object. That doesn't work very well in English. Uh, but the, 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 the major theme of the Iliad is the causes and consequences of one man's rage. Uh, and uh, just to sort of recap the Iliad, we see uh, a man become violently angry at an insult. Uh, his anger at that point uh, ultimately costs him the, the death of his very best friend. At, at that point, he uh, turns his attention, his rage, on a new object, the killer of his friend, and we actually see him become monstrous as he seeks to exact vengeance and he slaughters indiscriminately. He becomes uh, supernatural in his ability to kill. Uh, he kills his friend's killer uh, and it doesn't help a bit. Right. It doesn't make him feel any better. It doesn't enable him to continue his life. He continues to rage. And what we see in the epic is the one thing that does make him feel better and able to regain his humanity is his ability to empathize ultimately with his uh, dead enemy's father and to have this, this flash of insight where he suddenly realizes what is the one thing we all share as human beings that is our vulnerability to suffering and death. And that ultimately enables him to uh, regain his humanity and go on living. That's great. That's great. Uh, some of the, the, the characters uh, in this great story, the Iliad, that you talk about in the book, you know, Achilles and Agamemnon and Odysseus and uh, Paris and uh, you know there are a number of Hecuba. In fact, the 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 text that you the three you mentioned three texts in your book. The Iliad takes up what, about four chapters worth, I think. Then there's a chapter devoted to uh, the Ajax, the play by Sophocles, and the Hecuba by uh, the playwright Euripides. Um, there are some very provocative titles uh, to these chapters. I wonder if we could just unpack a few of them here. Um, sure. Uh, the first one, uh, chapter one, is titled Passions and Priorities. Uh, 
what does that chapter uh, uh, kind of reconstruct for us? So this is the, the, one of the oddities of the Iliad is that it depicts a 10-year conflict, but it starts in the middle of the 10th year. Uh, <laughs> so this is a war that's been going on for 10 years, and suddenly we're, we're, we're swept up into the very middle uh, of, of the conflict in the 10th year. And what we see is not Trojans battling Greeks or Greeks battling Trojans. In, in, in book one of the Iliad, you see the Greek, the leader of the Greeks arbitrarily opt to take a prize from his best warrior. And uh, the warrior reacts with incredible rage, that's Achilles, uh, and decides to withdraw from the fighting uh, and requests, in fact, that the gods bring uh, death and destruction on his own team, his own people, the Greeks. Uh, and so what we see in, in the opening scenes of the Iliad is you see powerful men with hot tempers who are more concerned about their own honor uh, than they are about the quality of life or the survival even of the people who choose to honor them. So the Iliad at the very beginning introduces this, what I see as a very political question, that is, what do we choose to honor and admire in our leading figures? Uh, we are going to be susceptible to the consequences of their decisions, and we need to think long and hard about the qualities that we seek in them that we choose to admire. Yeah, great. It, it's interesting that that, that problem, it, you, these days one hears or thinks about that kind of problem with Achilles, you know, who feels dishonored and therefore uh, wishes to bring down hurt or does not care about the hurt to his own people. You think about the slogans like, you know, party over country and this kind of thing, that there's a version of that kind of rage or collective embitterment. Um, another chapter in here where you start to unpack this even further is the next chapter called Them and Us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What does that chapter address? Well, one of the fundamental features of archaic society and the world that Homer depicts is this division of the world into friends and enemies, friends and foe. And that, of course, is also the fundamental distinction in uh, fascist ideals and also totalitarian ideals. There's, there's us and them. And so for me, one of the remarkable things about the Iliad is that it's not uh, a tale of this glorious Greek victory. The Greeks we know did succeed in, in, in destroying Troy, but the Iliad doesn't even show that. Uh, and it doesn't show you the, the conflict purely from the Greeks' perspective. The audience has a much broader perspective than the characters in the tale have. And one of the things that we see is uh, life inside the Trojan city, what what the Trojans are experiencing in this siege. So the Iliad completely humanizes the Greeks' uh, uh, mortal enemies, but shows that they are people just like the Greeks. They share the same religious beliefs. They share the same uh, fam they have family that love them. Uh, so they can't. They don't. The, the, the narrative doesn't demonize the Greeks' opponents. It encourages the, the the audience to see every per, every human participant as fully mortal and uh, valuable as an individual, as a human being. That's a, such a great and important point. You know, there are so many passages in this book that I love. That chapter there that you just are talking about has a passage uh, here I want to quote. It's page 41. Um, and you write that this chapter, I'm going to quote here from your book, uh, suddenly uh, makes suddenly visible to the audience amid the chaos and carnage of a, of a catastrophic conflict, the alternative 
to raging bloodlust, namely conversation, rational thought, and the decision to honor a moral obligation. You know, conversation should be so easy. We're having one this morning, for example, the two of us. <laughs> it's very pleasant. And yet, um, it, 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 the Iliad portrays conversation as being potentially so difficult. And this really struck me as resonant with our polarized society at present. Why do you think, I mean, do you see that difficulty of conversation portrayed in the Iliad? Or does it actually find ways to break down that difficulty, not just for us as readers, but for the characters in the story? Well, one of the uh, another fascinating thing about the Iliad, this is this is a culture that, that the warriors within the epic value martial success, that is the ability to defeat your enemy in warfare. But at the same time, they recognize that high achievers need to be doers of deeds and speakers of words. So they do value the ability to speak persuasively. And the passage that you just read follows on the heels of my description of this really extraordinary conversation that occurs between a Greek warrior and a Trojan warrior right in the heat of battle. It's entirely implausible, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it does definitely draw your attention because it is so implausible. And these two guys, before they start um, uh, throwing their spears at one another, one of them says to the other one, who are you? And they have this exchange and they suddenly realize that they're ancestors, their great-great-grandfathers, were what the Greeks understood as guest friends. The Greeks had a very complex system governing the uh, moral behavior between guests and hosts, the obligations you had as a guest or as a host. So these guys realized that since their grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers were guest friends, then they must be too, because it's an inherited obligation. But the key here is that they choose to honor it. And they only discover that they have this connection because they, they talk to each other. So what the audience sees is that uh, the decision to honor a moral obligation is a choice, and it comes as the product of conversation and, and rational thought. So the, these two warriors end up exchanging armor, and they part as friends, uh, and they go off and kill other, other people, but not <laughs> each other. Not each other. Yeah, an important distinction in the Iliad, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and in the present, I've got to say, too. Yes, um, they, they don't. They don't become uh, uh, peaceniks by any means. That's, that's right. That's right. No, no, that's going a step too far, right? <laughs> so, right, right. It's just um, a glimpse. It's just a glimpse of what's yeah, possible. But an important one. You say something else in that chapter I find really uh, important. It says on page 49, um, uh, you write that human communities can derive greatest benefit from, but are also most vulnerable to, their most talented and exceptional members. The quarrel between Achilles, right, the great warrior, and Agamemnon, the king, exposes the need, therefore, for everyone to think very carefully in deciding which human talents and achievements deserve the greatest honor. You continue, which goals should we strive for? Which abilities should we prize in our leaders and cultivate in ourselves? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a nice observation, Emily. It really rings true. Um, my question concerns your sense of our degree of agency in making these choices. To what extent are we actually able to deliberate on the virtues that we prize as a society? Or to what extent would we find ourselves reacting simply to people who are powerful and more wealthy and more able? How much agency do we have in, in the values that we determine that we want? 
Well, this is a great question. This is a great question. And we do inherit sort of traditional values from our families, from our communities. Uh, the, the Greeks were constantly interrogating their own traditional values because of course the Iliad and the Odyssey were transmitted orally for centuries before they were ever written down. So they kind of evolved as the needs of the community evolved. And then centuries later, the tragedians were plumbing this same traditional material and exposing uh, some of the traditional ideals as problematic in a democratic society. By the, by the time of the tragedians, Athens enjoyed a fully radical democratic society, but its members uh, had inherited these traditional ideals of friend and foe, for example. Uh, so I think we have more agency than we like to uh, admit. It's very easy to cede decision-making to our traditional views or to a powerful or authoritative individual. But one of the things that I think both Homeric epics really emphasizes is that there's a more direct correlation between our own choices and the consequences that occur then, then, then we often like to admit the characters within these stories often say, oh, well, God made me do that. But right. the audience sees that that's often not the case at all. Mm -hmm. It's the character's own poor choices and poor priorities that brought catastrophic results. That's very, that's, 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 a, that's a great observation again. Um, and and uh, uh, certainly very relevant, it seems to me, in so many ways uh, for what we are looking at in our present day there's a another chapter in here which we, which we have time to go over all the i'm going to skip a couple chapters here and if you want to catch one that we didn't talk well, about you fine. let me know but uh when you turn from the iliad talking about the sophocles play the ajax you the chapter here is titled the dangers it's very provocative the dangers of democratic decision making you know, often we associate danger with the antithesis, right? The, 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 the loss of any kind of democratic voice or sense of agency. Um, what does that mean in this chapter here, the dangers of democratic decision-making? So, you know, the Greeks were the very first to coin the term and try the experiment. Demokratia is a Greek word. Uh, and they recognize the, tra the tragedies really expose the fact that a majoritarian decision can uh, promote injustice or even uh, atrocity. In, in the Hecuba, a democratic decision actually promotes an atrocity. Uh, so the, the, the Sophocles play, the Ajax, as I read it, exposes this tension between the absolute values of the traditional view, right? There's, there's good and there's bad, there's right and there's wrong. And these things are independent of circumstances. We all know what they are. Uh, and then there's the other view that says, well, you can have a, a, a majority, majority vote to discern, determine what's right and what's wrong. And, and what the play shows is that these two ways of determining justice are completely antithetical. So uh, the story in the play is that Ajax, who was the greatest warrior after Achilles died at Troy, uh, he was supposed to get Achilles armor and the Greeks voted to give it instead to Odysseus. And everyone in the play accepts that that's a monstrous injustice. Uh, and um, Ajax doesn't take it very well. <laughs> right. So he, uh, he's kind of a model for us. It's one of the things that keeps me awake at night is the fear of this election that's coming up in November. No matter what happens, half of the country is going to feel, almost half, 
is going to feel that it was a monstrous injustice. And, and, and what then? How, how do we react? in that in that situation yeah i am curious just putting it a bit mildly i mean i think i'm 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 quite fearful actually of the outcome of of the um of the election uh if only because of the likely perception of monstrous injustice uh and uh what that may entail i i will see i mean this 2020 has been such an interesting year i mean who knows what's next for us let me ask you so you said something here that i find really important right so uh, there are monstrosities kind of on two ends. There could be the monstrosity of, you know, sort of a despotic, tyrannical leader on the one hand. There are also monstrosities of you know, sheer or mere democracy, the popular voice without any sense of moral wisdom. You talk a lot in the book about critical thinking, um, you know, the rational choice, how the Iliad and these other plays allow us to think clearly about the consequences of rage. Do you think that we have the same critical capacity to determine our moral obligations? Or are those things, or do we respond to those more than we choose them? I mean, these texts are about choosing our response to situations. Are they equally uh, informed about choosing the moral uh, responsibilities that we have in the first place? Well, one of the things that I love about the Ajax is that it's even-handed. The play shows us that there's something quite admirable in Ajax, in his uh, determination to remain loyal to his principles, his his refusal to change. Uh, But the play also shows us that there's something very admirable in the the, the moral flexibility of an Odysseus who says, I hated him when it was fair to hate. Uh, He can't hate his dead enemy after he's dead. And he recognizes the importance of uh, absolute principles of humanity and justice. Uh, He fights for the burial of his dead enemy in an effort uh, or in the under recognizing that he himself will be vulnerable, will be dead one day. So I think that the play shows us that these two ways of determining what is just our intention with one another, but that they both have value. It is important to have some absolute standards of morality and justice, but at the same time, democratic decision-making requires that we be able to make common cause with political enemies sometimes uh, and, and recognize our, our needs in the needs of others. Uh, we have to be able to do both those things. It's very complicated. So I think these plays and these uh, epics actually give us training in the kind of critical reasoning that we need in order to uh, cope with democratic institutions. I, I like that very much. It's a great answer, Emily. Um, more on, on critical reasoning. Um, you know, this is a, a point your book makes uh, very persuasively, the importance of it and the ways that these epics and myths uh, help us to achieve that kind of critical reasoning. My question here is whether you think that critical reasoning alone is enough. Something else you point out in the book, it's a very good point, that these wonderful stories also moved their audiences. There was an emotional component to them. Um, And I'm curious about how these different parts of these myths interweave, the emotional transport of the story on one side and the cool rationality of the meanings we draw from it on the other. How do they, how do these things work together, right? The emotional and the critical. Well, it's an, that's a very interesting question. Uh, one of the things that I, I think is important is that these are not stories 
about us directly, right? We don't star in these tales. So we can be moved by the characters' predicaments and, and what happens to them, uh, but we're not blinded by, by rage. So once you remove rage from the equation, we can feel for these characters. And one of the messages, the supreme message in, in the Iliad, and I think also in the Ajax, is the importance of empathy, okay. that ability to see our enemy as uh, someone just like us. So I think it, once you remove rage from the equation, you permit uh, the ability to, to feel the, the emotions without, without turning off your intellectual capacities at the same time. That's it. I, this is purely anecdotal, but when I was an undergraduate student, I took a drama class, and the teacher actually uh, told us that the easiest emotion to summon of all as an actor is anger or rage. Uh, you can do it on the spot. It's very, very simple. And if you want to build a decent character, only go there as a last resort. It's just too easy. And your point here, I mean, if I, sorry to project my own uh, youthful uh, sophomoric experience <laughs> under your sophisticated I, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah, but the point is that there need to be various kinds of empathetic engagements, and that's not simply cognitive. It's not simply rational, I should say. It's a, it's a more complex cognitive process, empathy is. But that rage is somehow beneath the better aspects of our being in that respect. As a teacher, do you, um, in teaching myth, is it enough uh, that you feel succeed if you taught critical thinking? I mean, should critical thinking be the preeminent value of a university education? Or what is it you try to give your students when you talk with them about these, about these stories? Well, actually, before I, before I answer that, I wanted to say something about your point about rage, because I do believe that rage, uh, history seems to suggest, it's a very natural response to insult and injury and injustice. Uh, and the, the crucial lesson from the Greeks and their myths is to recognize that violent rage doesn't serve you very well and stop celebrating and admiring the violent rage of other people. Uh, it's only at that point that we begin to think clearly. Um, politicians and leaders who seek to make us very angry, they know what they're doing because anger distorts our judgment and it makes us very easy to manipulate. Uh, and it, uh, it makes us easy prey for, for autocrats. Um, and so the remarkable thing for me is that the Greeks went the other direction. They, they over centuries, they uh, came to reject tyranny and uh, to experiment with broader forms of political participation. Uh, as far as teaching critical thinking as, as central to, a, to a, a university education, I do think it's a central component. And I think critical thinking, uh, if it's, if it's uh, effective, encourages us to empathize with one another as, as human beings. Uh, there's a wonderful line in the Odyssey where Athena says, uh, death, you know, is an impartial thing. Not even the gods can ward it off from even someone dear to them when the overwhelming force of prostrating death overcomes him. So we all are mortal. And this is the piece that the Greeks recognize that our mortality was in fact the spur to our morality. The Greek gods, they can't die. They can't uh, really be injured. They don't need morality. They, they couldn't use it even if they had it. But because we are mortal, we need morality. And uh, only we can 
devise it in our interactions with one another, how we treat one another. Which is great. That I think is the crucial. That I think is the crucial piece of a of a, of a university education. Yeah, that's really great. It makes it makes the humans in these myths more sophisticated, more complex creatures than the gods. Uh, which is a very important point because humans need to be mortal. They might not be, but they also should be because there are consequences for them that their calculus is more complicated than that of the gods in that respect, which is a, uh, an interesting point uh, to make, I think. Um, well, and we come to these stories, uh, I think most of us or many of us with that sort of Judeo-Christian conception that the gods are all good, all knowing and all powerful. And the Greek gods are not. Right. The Greek gods just are. They are, they are more like the physical forces of the universe. Uh, they, they provide the constraints within which we have to operate. I mean, I, I liken Apollo to gravity. You know, gravity doesn't care if you believe in it or not. If you fall out of a 12-story window, you're going to hit the ground hard, whether you believe in gravity or you don't. Right. And that's Apollo. So, that, so the Greeks just thought, well, we have to operate within these constraints. And, and the epics and tragedies encourage us to think about the parts of our lives that are in our control because they have direct causal uh, consequences. You know, these myths, uh, they have these strapping male characters in them, you know, Achilles and Odysseus and Ajax. And, but you point out in your book that there's an important place in these myths for women. I'm wondering if you can explain a little what place that is. Yeah, this is a tough thing because these, these stories are... Uh, they emerged in a patriarchal society, uh, even by 21st standards, fully misogynistic uh, society, xenophobic, bellicose, not, not, not admirable in many ways. Uh, and so the uncomfortable fact is that women were not uh, considered fully equal to men. And in the epics, they are, they are markers, they are possessions, they're markers of male achievement, markers of male status. Uh, we only begin in the epics to get a glimpse of female, female experience and autonomy and agency. So, for example, Helen speaks for herself, the great Helen, who was uh, the catalyst for the Trojan War in the first place. Uh, we see more in the Odyssey with Penelope, where she shares nearly all of her husband's great qualities, except for one. She, she lacks his capacity for emotional restraint. Uh, and this was key to... Um, the ancient Greek understanding of women. It wasn't that women were less intellectually capable uh, than men. It's that women were less able to control their passions. And the Greeks prided themselves on their ability to control their passions, which is why I don't think it's a coincidence that they're the very first uh, text that has survived uh, in Western civilization uh, addresses the problem of passionate rage, violent rage. But yeah, so women, women were, are, um, Definitely subordinate, uh, but they often in the tragedies recall men to moral responsibilities that they are forgetting. And that's a key, that's a key point too. Yeah, great point, thank you. Back to the title of this book, the subtitle, the title Enraged, uh, the subtitle Why Violent Times Need Ancient Greek Myths. I'm wondering if I can ask you a question about that need, about, about what, what it is that violent times need from these myths. Uh, do you think that these Greek myths uh, are useful to us, that we need them because they help divert us from rage? Or do they teach us instead how to recover from the effects of rage once we recognize the mess we've made of things? Yeah, I, I, do, think, I do think we all have a, a varying capacity for violent rage, but most of us 
will follow what our culture expects of us. So if we have a culture that's egging us on and saying, yes, get angry, get very angry, the angrier you are, the more sure you can be that you are morally correct, then I think we will lean into our rage. But these epics and tragedies suggest that rage distorts our judgment, that it makes us do things we wouldn't otherwise do uh, and, and things we might regret in the morning. Uh, and I think um, in the 21st century, we've developed this very sophisticated technology for killing one another, but we've systematically devalued rational thought, productive conversation, self-restraint, qualities that actually would enable us to survive and thrive. That's that's a great, I, I like that a lot. In fact, going back to what you said earlier about the gods, that the Greek gods are more like these forces of nature that give us the constraints which in which we have to move. A lot of our, of our technological systems, these forces that we have to hurt each other, are the equivalent of these Greek gods, or these massive forces that create the constraints within which we move. And we have, it seems to me, not we're not doing as well as we might as a society, right, in, in learning uh, the lesson uh, about why it is unwise to act in rage. Um, massive, massive understatement yeah, there, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Are there times when, when rage, do you think, is a necessary social yes. response? Uh, what, what, for example? Yes, I think that anger at times can promote a necessary and constructive response to injustice. Uh, but when anger slops over into violence, and we're seeing now the introduction or the reintroduction of violence into the political process, well, then it becomes completely counterproductive. Uh, and it, 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 it prevents us from seeing creative solutions to existential problems that face all of us, problems like a pandemic or uh, climate change, wildfires, hurricanes. These, these are uh, indiscriminate moral forces, just like the gods. The gods are indiscriminate moral forces. A pandemic doesn't care uh, which way you vote or, or uh, if you're a good person or a bad person. Uh, and, and so rage prevents us from seeing our common interests and from thinking creatively uh, about solutions. I say. And, and that's, that's, that seems that seems so pertinent uh, in so many ways. The, the need for creative thinking about how to address some of these problems. That I mean, some problems, okay, are pretty easy, not easy to solve, but they're easy to see. Others, the way out of them seems much more complex. Requires, I think, all the uh, empathy and critical acuity we can summon. Uh, begins in conversation. I've got just a few more minutes here to ask maybe two more questions. Um, I'm curious. So you've. I find myself in the middle of my career, I'm not brand new on the block as a professor, and you've been teaching for a little while yourself. Do you value myths differently now than you did a decade or two ago? I'm wondering how your appreciation of these myths has evolved uh, from when you were you know, a graduate student or first starting out in your career versus thinking about them now in terms of these large categories or large applicability to, to our modern situations. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's been sort of, I think, a gradual evolution for me. I've always sort of walked along with one foot in the ancient world and one foot in ours. Uh, more and more, I've realized how important it is for people in specialized disciplines to reach out to uh, broader audiences. Uh, we can get so insular and we're just writing for each other. Uh, and and that doesn't help anyone. These, these stories that I'm uh, fascinated by 
used to be ubiquitous. People knew them well, and certainly in the ancient world, they, they knew them well. Uh, and now they tend to be, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. I read it a little bit in high school. Uh, but people uh, are not as familiar with them as I think would be helpful for all of us. Uh, one of the things I've noticed more and more with my students is that they, they come to these stories thinking that they are monolithic, that there's uh, one version of each story because that was the version maybe that they encountered. But in fact, they're constantly evolving. So the, the oral tales were evolving as they were told and retold. And then the tragedies were changing details and emphases to uh, address the needs of a new, an entirely new political moment. Uh, and, and even now we have modern retellings. So every retelling tells you what the teller cares about and values. Uh, I encourage my students to look at modern uh, entertainment, film, television, novels, see where these stories are still cropping up with new transmitting new messages. Okay. I don't think I answered your question. No, that's a, no, didn't <laughs> you did actually. And, and you're pointing out that there are different um, uh, uh, versions of these myths. That's the thing about myth that's so great. It's, it's such flexible, it's a very flexible narrative medium. It accommodates novelty and difference of perspective and, and, and application to new situations. So I guess I'll leave you with this question here. It's, it's, so as you yourself continue to sort of adapt yourself as a scholar to these myths, what's next for you uh, in your scholarship uh, about them? Do you have a project on the horizon? Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you asked because I have a new book coming out uh, next year, next fall. Great. Uh, the, the title at the moment is Defeating Despotism, Why Tyrannical Times Need Ancient Greek Myths. <laughs> uh, and this is basically the same format. Uh, uh, the tales I'm going to be discussing are from the, I, I discuss are from the Odyssey, uh, from a trilogy of plays by Aeschylus called the Oresteia, mm. and from Sophocles' play The Antigone. Uh, and I think these, these uh, in some sense, were issues that I started with, but I realized that I had to address the first step. The very first step for civil society is recognize that violent rage is not in your own best interest and don't, don't admire it in other people. But that's only a very first step. So this next book addresses well, what comes next. What other uh, talents, skills, values do you need? in order to survive and thrive as an individual, but also to have your community survive and thrive. So that's, that's my next project. <laughs> it sounds great. I can't wait to read it. I will mention to our audience, we've had Emily on Zoom. A couple of times, uh, the sound got a little bit glitchy as Zoom always does, but it's been a remarkably good connection. And uh, you are a, um, a very engaging uh, guest and scholar. It's been a real delight talking with you, Emily. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for your excellent work. Uh, I love the book Enraged, uh, and I and the next book. Well, the next book's title is what at the moment? It's uh, defeating despotism. Defeating despotism. Okay, I look forward well, to that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Very well, good. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about Enraged. I would love to come back next time and talk about the new book that when that great. comes out. We'd love it. All right. Thank you, Emily. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast. Think clearly, act well, appreciate life. This podcast is sponsored by the Humanities Center and the College of Humanities of Brigham Young University 
and is produced and edited by Brooke Brown and Sam Jacob. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by the Soli Chamber Orchestra and Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. If you're interested in other episodes of this podcast or want to know more about the BYU Humanities Center, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.